Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the name John is a very nice kind of a name, but it's a special name because it simply means God is gracious. God is gracious. It was the most appropriate name that was given to this miraculous child of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the one whom God had appointed to be the one who prepared the people for the coming of the Lord, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Oh, indeed, God was gracious. Reading again at verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The correct name, if you will, meaning God is gracious. God was so gracious to that elderly couple whom he chose to, to work with. God, indeed, was going to be very gracious to Israel. And God, of course, has been so very gracious to you and to me, we who are in such desperate need of divine grace, lest we perish in our own sin. What a wonderful thing it is, congregation, to be able to receive the grace of God through the preaching of the Word of God to sinners like us, so destitute of ourselves, so without hope and lost in the world and sitting in darkness apart from the grace of God. And so, when this glorious message came that day to Zacharias in the temple, that joy and gladness would also fill his soul and be for Israel's people, we would have thought, how could anyone possibly not want to believe such a glorious message? How come he was not able to believe Well, we see that there was unbelief in Zacharias' heart. So it was in our first mother Eve. She chose to listen not to the word of God, but to the words of the devil, his lies. And we as well are disposed to the same sort of thing. How much we need divine grace, congregation, how much I need to be forgiven of all of my sins, and you all together with me, to receive redeeming grace, pardoning grace, and sanctifying grace. And God is so gracious to supply that grace to us. Our Advent theme this morning, despite unbelief, God's gracious will was accomplished. When we look at this message again this morning, we see it was such an astonishing, it was a miraculous kind of a message. And isn't that how it is with all of the Scriptures? They are miraculous. It is a, an astonishing book. And as a priest of God, Zacharias as well would have known of the astonishing, miraculous work of God that he had accomplished already throughout the history of God's people. But now here, when God suddenly intervenes once again with divine revelation to this particular priest who was in duty, on duty in the temple, this priest reacts not with joy and gladness, but with a question that betrays unbelief. Unbelief. We see in our first point, Zacharias' question betrays 
unbelief. And that in view of the great and astonishing word that the angel had spoken to him, first telling him that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. And then at verse 17, and he will go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And all Zacharias can, can say in return is, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How can I know the certainty of what you're saying? Elizabeth was old. She'd been barren all her life. And Zechariah and Elizabeth both perhaps pushing on to 80 years, perhaps more. Zechariah's thinking was governed by the laws of nature. A barren womb is a barren womb. It can't produce a thing. And old people, guess what? They don't have children either. So it was a hopeless thing as far as he was concerned. Old people simply don't have children. But congregation, has old age ever stopped the will of God? We think of Sarah and the barren womb that she had. Was that an obstacle for God to complete His will for His people's sake? Or the, or the womb of, of Hannah that was barren as, as well? Isn't God the one who opens the wombs and also closes the wombs? And surely we know Zechariah must have known that for sure too, just like we do as well. And yet when these words come to this old man, Zechariah, and to his barren wife, Elizabeth, why, it's simply too much. It is simply too much to believe. How shall I know this? I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Zechariah wants more proof, we're, we're, we're thinking here. He maybe wants some kind of a sign. But congregation, were not Zechariah and Elizabeth being the descendants of that old, old man Abraham and his, and his barren wife Sarah, were they not living proof of the power of God and the truthfulness of the Word of God? Indeed. And are we not, as God's people, always expected to believe the Word of God and the power of God and the grace of God? Have God's hands ever been tied, congregation, by the laws of nature that He Himself has put in place? Well, of course not. And nevertheless, Zechariah had his excuse 
for not believing. He was simply too old. People have all kinds of excuses today as well for not believing both the Word of God and the power of God. When God's Word apparently conflicts with so-called science, why the Word of God is not to be believed by science, yeah, that we will believe, even if the science is kind of skewed and uncertain, we'll still believe science rather than the Word of God. People don't believe that there is such a thing as heaven or hell because these things have never been found. We can't search them out on our best telescopes. We, we, they're just not there. It's all part of myth and legend. People no longer believe in the resurrection of the body because it's just simply a scientifically impossible thing to conceive of. It just can't be. Can't be. And yet, should not science or all our investigations always have to submit to the Word of God? Indeed, they must, right? Because God also created all these, all these means and ways of science to explore and to know His universe better. Zechariah says, how can I know this? How can you know this? A good hundred years ago, within the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the PCUSA, the leadership no longer deemed it good to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ because they deemed it to be a biological impossibility. Science has spoken. Nor did they believe that the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden. But congregation, when God says something in His Word, isn't that enough? Should we ask for more when God already has said it? Of course. Of course. Is it enough for you when God speaks in His holy Word concerning the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it enough for you when we hear the words that God became flesh? and dwelt among us? Or might you be like Zacharias and say, how can I know this? Well, how are we prepared to celebrate again the glorious birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we celebrate it again? Perhaps some of you have been celebrating the the birth of Christ already for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And how can we do it again with joy and gladness in our souls? Well, by believing the very Word of God as it is, and believing in the power of God indeed as it was then exhibited again. I would submit to you if God's Word was not miraculous, if God's Word was not true, then really we ought not to believe it either. If you want our Christian faith to be based on simply the kinds of things that man himself can do, well, then it's not a faith worth believing at all. When God's Word is miraculous, then it is worth believing because it is utterly beyond what we can do or accomplish by our own intelligence. And so let us again be prepared to celebrate with joy our Savior's birth by simply believing His Word at face value. 
for what it is, the Word of God in truth. Humbling ourselves, eh? Humbling ourselves before the Word of God and all His mighty power and grace. Zacharias then simply could not do it. He could not do it, at least not then. His faith faltered. We would say his faith also was blemished by unbelief. And you know what? So are our hearts too. We also are fallen children of Adam and of Eve. And we have partaken of their unbelieving natural human nature to which they descended unto. And oh man, do we ever need a Savior then to one who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, who came to save us from all our unbelief. Now, don't misunderstand things here and think that Zacharias was actually an unbeliever at this time. No, he was not at all. For we read in verse 6 that he was righteous before God, and that him and his wife walked in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were blameless. And yet, this was still all too much for old Zechariah to accept as real and true. The point here need to be made, congregation, even in our faith, there can be that blemish, there can be a small root or remnant of unbelief. Just like even in all our best works, there's still that blemishing character of sin that's deep down the nitty-gritty of our poor, lowly hearts. We think of Sarah, who laughed when those three visitors came to Abraham one day and told them about this time next year, your wife Sarah will bear you a son. And Sarah, listening in in the, in the tent, she, she laughed. Sarah couldn't believe it either. Hey, the mother of the faithful. She couldn't believe it. And so, congregation, we see then that God has to do something above this, doesn't He? He, is, he has come to overcome our unbelief and to destroy the effect of that unbelief that we too indeed would be righteous and blameless in, in His sight. The point is, nothing can stop God from fulfilling His gracious will. Nothing can stop Him. And so in the second place now, as we move on, we see how Gabriel, the angel, must affirm God's Word. For as our theme states, despite unbelief, God's gracious will was accomplished. We go to verse 19, we read, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. When Zechariah first hears the angel speaking, he knows this is no ordinary phenomena. This is something supernatural. Indeed, it was spectacular. We read at verse 11, 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Here we have very important information. The altar of incense stood right next to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And at the right hand of the altar of incense seems to again indicate that commanding authority of one who was ordained by God to burn the incense and to be the spokesman of the Lord. And, and here we read the angel saying what he does. He, he immediately reassures Zacharias after we read that Zacharias is troubled when he saw him and that fear fell upon him. Zacharias must have been dreadfully afraid at this sudden appearing of God's holy angel, his messenger. It can only mean one thing, congregation, that this one who was standing right at the right side of the altar of incense has got to be God's spokesman. It seems as if he's just come from behind the veil and now comes in front of the veil to proclaim this glorious, glorious truth a heavenly messenger from God. And the angel immediately reassures him. He quiets him down. He promises him great things. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. When he says, your prayers have been heard, who but God could have been hearing all those prayers through all of those years? And when he makes this wonderful promise, who but God could have made such a promise that a child would be born to his barren wife? And who but God could bring such a thing to pass? And who but God could then already designate the name? His name shall be called God, shall be called John. <clears throat> and so we see, congregation, for Gabriel had to affirm God's word here to Zacharias to take away his fear, to take away his unbelief, and to bolster his faith, and to make it very plain, he says in verse 19, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, I was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. In other words, I am not just any angel, but I come from the presence of God. I've come from His holy throne in heaven, and I've come straight here forthwith with a message. I'm under divine orders. And this is what God is going to do. Your wife will bear a child, and it will be for Israel's salvation. I was sent to speak to you to declare good news. Congregation, we can understand from Scripture, as far as we know, that Gabriel was perhaps the highest and the mightiest of all God's holy angels, standing nearest to God's heavenly throne and now he's sent way down to God's earthly temple. With divine authority, he's come. And with divine authority to communicate so that divine truth must come down through and pierce through 
the unbelief that is going to resist it break through down to our poor and lowly and sinful status, yes, even to we who sat in darkness, that we might believe something that is out of this world, come from heaven, miraculous, divine, and it seems impossible, but is anything impossible with the Lord? Of course not. Nothing can be. And so, brothers and sisters, here we see, if you will, an invasion of earth from heaven, a penetration of divine revelation by God's holy angel announcing glad tidings, good news, exactly as it was promised by God's prophets of old. In particular, here I refer to Malachi some four centuries earlier. This was foretold. And here we see it happening, that John would be the one who prepare the way for God's people to meet the Lord. Congregation, this is the stuff of our faith. It's not the stuff of fantasy, nor of myth, or simply ideology, but it is the stuff of divine revelation, and that is reality. It's the stuff of our salvation given to us despite our natural resistance, say, our natural unbelief. Oh, again, as I said before, if it was not miraculous, I wouldn't blame you at all if you didn't believe it. If, if this is just a nice, legendary kind of a story, please don't waste your time trying to believe this because it's, it's not going to help you. But this is so worth believing. It is so full of divine power manifested and divine grace revealed and divine truth communicated to ensure your, whole, your happiness and your eternal joy and to be sure, first, your forgiveness of all your sins. Remember, we are in a desperate state without the divine grace of God in Jesus Christ revealed. We are without peace with God unless this takes place. And it did. See how Gabriel has got to affirm God's Word. God's Word can never fail. God's Word is always true. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that is the truth. That is the truth. Well, congregation, let's look at a different scenario, a hypothetical. What if the angel had said, well, Zacharias, since you did not believe my words, well, guess what? Your wife Elizabeth is not going to have a child either. <laughs> if that is how you want it, that's how it's going to be. But the angel said no such thing, did he? You see, despite our unbelief, God's gracious will will be accomplished for the saving of many. And thus, in the third place, 
Zechariah is chastised, and yet at the same time, Elizabeth is able to conceive, and she does. We move on to verse 20. The angel says to, to, to Zacharias, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You did not believe my words. I pray that that, that that would not be said of any one of you or even your little children that they did not believe the words of God. The very most important thing you could ever do in your life is to believe the words of God and to take them simply for what they are, the word of truth, communica communicating divine truth, divine grace, and of power. And yet, Zechariah could not. He became a silent witness to the power of God. And that made me think of that little passage in Malachi 2, verse 7, where the prophet says that the lips of a priest should keep knowledge or guard knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth, for he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But now Zechariah is unable to speak. Now he's no longer to operate, able to operate as a messenger of God right now. He's failed at his duty because of unbelief. What a horrible thing to say of a priest or of a prophet. The very thing you're supposed to do, you can't do. Why? Because you did not believe the Word of God. It's like a minister coming up front and he has to preach the Word. He doesn't believe the Word of God. He disqualifies himself immediately. What a horrible thing if that would be the case in the church. He has disqualified himself and the angel's words come true. You will be unable to speak. He's failed. And yet we see God allows him to fulfill that week of service that he was appointed to do in the temple that particular week. We read at verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Zacharias, though he couldn't speak, yet he was not dismissed from office that particular week. See how, see how gentle and gracious God is with his servants, even when they sometimes mess up and show their human nature really come through in a way that is so, so in conflict with the work they're supposed to do. Zacharias remained a silent witness. He was chastised, and right, rightly so. He had, to, he had to learn something here, congregation, and of course we know that he, he would have. No doubt he must have been very ashamed of his unbelief throughout the course of that week before he went home. And yet, when he does return home, we read soon after that Elizabeth conceives. Her womb is made fertile, and then in the process of time, very shortly thereafter, 
she conceives that promised child from that old man, Zacharias. What a wonderful thing, congregation. We see how God's Word always comes true. It never fails because God is pleased to be gracious to you and to me. As the angel had said, Zacharias would get his speech back when all these things that he had spoken of would come to pass, come true. And that's exactly what happened as we read going on in chapter 1 to verse 64. We see there how Zacharias' mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to praise God. And the last part of the chapter deals with that glorious prophetic word that Zacharias speaks forth concerning the work of John the Baptist and the Messiah's birth as well. And then we look at his precious wife, Elizabeth. Her own shame of being childless also was taken away. Look at verse 20, 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, Elizabeth, we would say for sure, was not worthy of that kind of shame, but that's how it was in those days. That was customary that a woman who was barren, never had children, they were looked upon in some kind of a shameful way. But now this stigma that she bore all his life, all her life was taken away by this miraculous child. It's the miracles of God that take away the shame of our hearts and lives, the shame of our sin. And to, to, to verify it all, too, was that his name would be John, the Lord is gracious. Elizabeth's shame is taken away. Then look at Zacharias when he was given it again to be able to speak nine months later. His shameful unbelief, its manifestation of it in his silence, his being mute, was also taken away. Because God is gracious. Yes, he may chastise us, and indeed he is so right to do so when these fra fragments and and remnants of unbelief keep poking through in our lives. But Christ has come to take away the shamefulness of our guilt and all the filth of our sin. Not by unbelief, but by our believing as well. The simple word of the prophets, the divine promises of God, that a Savior would be born who is Christ the Lord to take away our shameful, filthy, sinfulness because God was determined His gracious will would be accomplished for us. And thus we see that, of course, happening as John becomes a man, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and John makes that, I would say, famous declaration in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And Peter himself would say, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the apostles would continue to testify as John did as well. Brothers and sisters, these are 
glad tidings. They are not sad tidings, but that which is filled with great joy, tremendous comfort, and to be sure, much vital instruction that we need for our hearts so that we don't get tangled up again with myth and ideology or tinsel in this Christmas season, but that we immerse ourselves and keep ourselves there in the depths of the truth of God's holy word. And with it comes, of course, by the Holy Spirit, the power of God Himself to take away the dimness of our souls and our default position, which is to not really want to believe at all the truth for us. So may your hearts be full, congregation, of praise and wonder at the glory of God that was revealed in those days with the coming of the Lord Jesus. And may your hearts, therefore, also be filled with joy as you continue to worship the Lord this day, Christmas Day, and in the coming new year, filled with reverence and wonder for God and His Word, your hearts being overflowing with praise. We can never praise God too much. For indeed, to God belongs all the glory, right? There is no greater glory, no other glory to consider but this, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for your salvation and mine and always for his glory. Amen. We respond with the singing from page 61. The hymn that we have there on page 61 from the supplement. 